0: Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas not only shape markets, but they can also change the world. One of the things I've been doing lately, uh, I don't know if I've shared with this community, is you've heard me interview Dr. Rob McKenna, who used to be a head of organizational psychology at uh, Seattle Pacific University. And and runs whole, wholly intentional leadership development uh, as a curriculum for leaders. And, uh, and in it, uh, every Friday, I uh, actually attend a free um, symposium, if you will, of uh, individual business leaders from the nonprofit and for-profit world. And in there, I, I met a person who actually has been fundamental to one of the great educational institutions in the United States, the University of Washington. Uh, She's the assistant vice president of total talent management, which also uh, runs um, the professional organizational development. And if you think about it, that infuses the very core of their customer, the student at the University of Washington. So I am glad to have with me today, Uhima Donaldson. Uhima, nice having you. Thank you. We're Good to gonna, be here. I can't wait to have a great conversation with you. Um, <laughs> um, I, 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 first of all, want to know what talent management is to the University of Washington. If I ask somebody at the University of Washington what that is and what it serves, what does it do? Sure. Total talent
1: management is actually a newer imagined um department it actually is um, a hub of three different departments that serve our uh, staff population Um, and so it comprise of professional and organizational development, um, which has been around for many, many years, also known in many other organizations as training and development um, or training and organizational development. So that is that department. The second department that makes up the three is UTEMP, which is our temporary agency uh, for the university. Um, And then the third is campus recruiting. So those three departments make up total talent management. And really our focus is on attracting, retaining, and developing staff for the University of Washington.
0: You know, I I talk to a lot of CEOs, C-level people, and they tell me one of the greatest needs. Um, if, if, If you say as a leader, Uh, What fuels your success today and also ensures your tomorrow is your ability to innovate and change and adapt and be agile. One of the core things is engagement.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: How do you engage with your employees and how do you develop that kind of culture? Uh, So attracting, training, retaining, sustaining that is the spark. Um, What have you learned over the years uh, differently than you when you started that has uh, fueled your success?
1: That's a really good question. I think that, you know, one of the things... um, that I've learned, but I guess also have reinforced over my years is the fact that, um, you know, this ability to reinvent ourselves um, and what we do is so very crucial. And so professional and organizational development is at the core of that, right? We have the opportunity to provide training and workshops for individuals to improve whether that is their Um, knowledge, skills, and ability, um, or even just uh, something within their uh, personal lives, right? Personal, professional lives, maybe career development, if you will. Um, And so while we have the opportunity to be there and be with folk, Um, through training and workshops, we also have the opportunity, awesome opportunity to coach individuals and then to consult, Um, you know, not just when things go wrong, um, but when they're thinking about their next. And then that also informs us um, of what our next is, because we strive to be right there in time, real time with folks um, so that they can pull down what they need when they need it. So I think if there's anything that I've learned, it's this ability to be agile, right? Um, And agile and and resilient um, at the same time, because Um, One of those departments within uh, total talent management, um, professional organizational development is actually self-sustaining, which means that we have to charge a service to our clients um, to engage with us. And so because we are a business inside of a state organization, we realize that we have customers and clients and they could go anywhere for their service. And so it's crucial that, um, you know, we remain cutting edge and at the forefront of um, understanding what the needs of our customers are.
0: I learned a a term years ago called intrapreneurship, not entrepreneurship. And that is the ability to be innovative inside an already existing organization. And uh, it certainly sounds you have all sorts of incentive to do that. Yeah, I like that. I hadn't heard that term. Entrepreneurship. but <laughs> I love this. Their next informs our next. In a, in a society that's rapidly evolving, rapidly changing, different customer demands and needs over time, their next informs our next. How do you do that? How do you get to their next where they have enough trust and relationship with you to even know what that is? That's, yeah, that's the tricky part, right? I
1: think one of the things that I've learned over the years is, right, our credibility and integrity go a long way. And when people can trust um, that we are going to be there with them through their ups and their downs, um, and that we have a core Right, that is true to who we are, that we offer the university um, as a service, but then we will continue to remain uh, open and innovative, right? That we um, maintain that portion of what we do that remains on the cutting edge, but there's also this kind of um, solid uh, line that goes through everything that we do that holds us to the core of who we are, reminds us of our commitment to the university, to the state and to our clients, right? And so when people can trust that about you, um, and that's the the piece that doesn't change, right? Um, I am Ujima. Right, always, every day, but I change my clothes. So <laughs> it's the same with professional and organizational development. We are at the core in service of uh, staff and faculty, and um, and there are times where we change our clothes, right, mm-hmm. where we can meet the needs of our specific clients.
0: Well, you know, it's I, I really can't wait to hear from you what cutting edge is these days. Here's what I do know. There was a strong push for quite a while, and still is, for education to be utilitarian. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a piece of paper at the end of the day that will uh, get me a job. Uh, and, uh, and I'm wondering if that's shifting, if societal norms are shifting, especially with this these new generations of leaders coming forward are they still just wanting to get a piece of paper to get a job or are you seeing now a change something cutting edge that you need to recruit differently you need to train differently for
1: yeah that that opens up a really great discussion for us because um it isn't just the utilitarian focus, right? I think that people still go to universities um, to uh, obtain, right? Um, whatever that outcome is. Um, so I think the educational is still um, key and a huge component. However, there's more of this community um, type and experiential type of um, desire and wanting and seeking that happens in university settings these days, right? So um, it is with the digital natives, right? I'll <laughs> call out um, that uh, group of folk. Um, the digital natives, um, we're seeing that it's, it's much more about um, the community that uh, we're able to offer And uh, the experience of the community that bridges um, not just locally, but globally. And so um, while again, I think if you're attracted to university, you still want the piece of paper, right? That still remains core, but it's not enough. Um, It has to be about more. It has to be about an opportunity for inclusion an opportunity to be a part of something greater than just yourself. So I'm seeing that, I'm seeing evidences um, of that.
0: I absolutely do too, in the larger society as a whole, uh, in a sense, a search for meaning uh, and yes. relevance in, in everything we do, which is exciting for me to see. Exciting mm-hmm. in these new It days. is exciting. So uh, can you give me different examples of that, of, of where you're seeing profound experiential community within the university today?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, this, with the dual pandemics, I will call them, right, with uh, COVID-19 and then the systemic racial injustice that we face, um, right, we um, had a very real call to stay home, right, uh, last year, almost a year ago um, in, in March. And then um, we started to see um, some, some rising in the space of racial injustice and a call for um, spaces to uh, rise up in respect to anti-racism and um, other things. And so um, one of the things that we saw marked difference in this time than from before is that um, we were not able to practice presence with each other in ways that we were able to practice pressed presence um, or as I have coined withness right this ability to be tangible with each other and having to go into zoom environment or teams environments um, allowed us to explore ways in which we want to be together um, and creating that space um, that was meaning making for us and so one of the things that we did very practically in pod, (laughs) professional organizational development will heretofore be known as pod. One of the things that we did more practically is we started conversations on race. And um, that became a container for us to have these dialogues over four weeks with a cohort of folk who were interested in having these conversations and supporting each other through um, you know, learning together, providing that safe space for us to learn and to talk and to grow. And then to also then leave that space and go out and lead um, our teams and initiatives, etc. cetera. So um, I think that one of the things that we've seen from this is an opportunity to engage and to come together in ways that um, we didn't always make time for when we were face to face. And there's something very different um, um, and comforting about folk being able to have those conversations from their home. Yes. And right, that it's something about being anchored in a space that is your home um, and not foreign to you, that we've learned that there have been much um, richer um, exchanges that have come from, from that. So that's just a, a small example of some of the things that we're seeing, hearing, and then doing as a result thereof.
0: I just love your, your, uh, the term you use in practicing presence withness. I just love that. you got to write a book on that one of these days. That's a
1: great
0: great title for a book.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'm working on it.
0: (laughs) The, um, The withness, what you discovered is you thought, oh my gosh, conversations like that have to be together physically. But what you discovered was out of need Mm-hmm. came this new ability to connect in a very visceral way because they changed their environment. And, they, and, and, and yet also a sense of urgency that they weren't going to just have a conversation and learn about each other, right. but it looks like it was very intentional that we are going to come out of this so we can make a difference in the world that we can provide some kind of leadership. That's what exactly. I read into your story. Is that right? That's correct.
1: Yes. Every week we we went for four weeks and actually had to, um, I kept the cohort small as just 50 people. Um, and we quickly filled up and had to add another cohort um, the following month. And um, we're going to do it again. I just need to get the space and bandwidth to do so. Um, but each week of the, the four weeks we were together, each week had a different focus and individual, we created some content, um, in an online kind of self-paced learning environment where I could, you know, put, um, videos or, mm-hmm. um, you know, other content there that would help to frame our conversation. So I wasn't having to do a lot of teaching while we were together, but I could use our time to really have um, dialogue. And the point of that was so that people could practice, right, Um, in a space that was safe, um, practice language, that they hadn't used before um, and practiced an ability to have these tough conversations. Um, And and it was was just wonderful to watch um, as folks came together with, and and all levels within the organization. We had folks from our senior leadership on um, the call um, all the way uh, across the organization right, to some of our frontline supervisors um, who were a part of the conversation as well. So um, there was some definite unification happening.
0: Well, one of the things that is definitely very apparent to me in our societal structures is how difficult it is to have an honest, transparent conversation, allowing for, because you, you got very specifically into language here, allowing for the different dialectics we're coming from. Yes. Right? Because because those words we've used in the past are still real to us until we make the migration to a different future. Yes. So how? What have you learned? I, I don't know how... When you say it was safe, you know I don't know who was in this cohort, this consortium, uh, whether they were radically different people with radically different cultures and backgrounds. But yes, let, let, let's play it. Let's play a little scenario here. If I took a Seattle cop, a C- Seattle city councilman, <laughs> um, a Black Lives Matter person, and a uh, and a uh, raging capitalist in put them in a room together, not to mention where, how they grew up and what kind of lifestyles they grew up in and what kind of cultural them, but, but very simply this, they're all radically different. Mm -hmm. And yet the same, how do you bring a witness to that group? What would be your advice to us as a society on how to make that a courageous, fierce, transparent, collegial, safe conversation?
1: Right, so I think that one of the things I want to acknowledge is that I use the word safe, but during um, our conversations we use the word brave.
0: Oh. Um,
1: and so, um, you know, while folk indicated to me that they felt safe, our nomenclature kind of over the um, space was that it was a brave space. And so, one of the ways in which we, um, you know, started to engage, it was really important to me. Um, is that we used um, author by the name of Pat Hughes. She's local. She teaches for us um, at the University of Washington um, and teaches within our program. Um, Her book is called Gracious Space. And so really, um, it really was just us inviting people into a gracious space. And you don't, when you're receiving an invitation you don't have to accept the invitation, but if If you do expect the, um, you know, accept the invitation, then our expectation is that you will, you know, behave accordingly. And so after we invited people into our gracious space, we then gave them our mutual agreements. So this is our covenant together, right? This is our code of conduct together. And I asked each session, There were eight of these mutual agreements that I said, if you can agree to this, please either audibly say yes, raise your um, electronic hand, or just by showing me um, your hand or thumbs up, um, indicating that you agree and can continue. If we don't have that agreement, then we will not proceed or continue. And each week we set the stage in that way so it seemed like a lot to begin with eight minutes of inviting people into gracious space and acknowledging mutual agreements, but it worked.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, you actually repeat that every time before you met. Every time. Uh, and it's so it's such an anchoring principle, isn't it?
1: Yes. And every time I teach cultivating cultural competence or, any of um, you know the courses within our diversity equity and inclusion, I invite people into gracious space where we can um, be okay learning in public, <laughs> which is one of the major um, principles in gracious space. Um, and then you know sharing with them the mutual agreements. This is the way that we as this community will behave. Can you agree or can you not agree?
0: These and are If not, questions. why? There are eight statements, correct?
1: Yes. And these were just eight statements that I've come up with. They're not from gracious, gracious space. um, But, you know, as a facilitator, as an educator, you come up with what works best um, based on your facilitation style and what uh, your bandwidth is. And so um, Mm -hmm. those were crafted around also my
0: comfort (laughs) and abilities. Right. Would you mind sharing those eight right now? I'll have to get them, but. That's all right, that's all right. Uh, I, and that's what I love about a great conversation. We don't edit out the us and, and white spaces inside the conversation, because this is what you and I would do if we were sitting down physically too. We'd find a way to, to get to that, but thank you it so much. It is true.
1: I have them here. The first of which of those mutual agree- agreements is to stay engaged. Very simple, very short. The second is that we're not gonna fix anything. Um, You know, these things weren't created overnight and they won't be fixed overnight. So we can put our tools of fix away for this session. The third is that we will take risks in the conversation. We're okay putting ourselves out there. Number four is that we will experience discomfort be okay experiencing discomfort together. Number five is that we will speak our truth, knowing that our truth may be different than others. Number six is that we will do our best to know that folks are working with what they have, right? (laughs) And um, when our words hurt someone, we'll own it we'll apologize um, and you know, we won't get defensive. Number seven is that we'll keep our com- our conversation confidential, that we don't have an expectation that we'll run back and say, oh my goodness, I was in a training and Ujima said, right? Um, or I was in a training and Bob said, but we'll keep our conversation confidential. And then last, um, but not least number eight is that we'll show grace for ourselves and for one another in our interactions, realizing again, that we're all in different places and, um, we need moments to breathe even
0: with each other. We need moments to breathe. What I love about, uh, each of these, Ajima, is the, um, the fact that you could probably spend 20 minutes talking about the words you chose to use. It's and true. Number, number one, what is engagement? Number two, why wouldn't we want to fix something if we're in a group like this? You know, why, why we, we wanna make a difference, right? Why, why don't we wanna fix it right now in this group? Or, or the uh, confidential conversation, the, the way to attribute what is learned Without attributing it to another.
1: Yeah, that's right. Wow. I think, you know, a lot of those things come up during the course of the conversation. And because I've set the tone at the beginning, it gives me wonderful space to reach for it when it happens. During our conversation, there is oftentimes people want to fix things. And it is because of our fragility that um, we want to fix it, right? And so I am well within my right as a facilitator to then remind them that again, we, we didn't build, build this overnight. So we're not going to fix it overnight. We may have some great solutions that uh, we can begin to try and to work um, and to practice, um, but, but we're not solutioning in
0: this space. What do you mean? We're talking. right. What do you mean? I mean, I'm fascinated by it. What do you mean um, because of our fragility, we want to fix it? Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Yeah. So that's a term borrowed from Robin D'Angelo's work in white fragility,
0: mm-hmm.
1: specifically speaking um, about white discomfort and wanting to be moved in situations of discomfort to action. And so um, I have then borrowed Robin's language of fragility because I see that it shows up not just in whiteness but in privilege. And so many of us sit in our intersectionalities um, of privileged spaces and um, fragility shows up for us because, we want it to be smooth, right? We don't want to experience discomfort. If we can alleviate discomfort for ourselves, um, first ourselves um, and then for others, uh, we, we seek to do so rather than sitting in that discomfort and really understanding what uh, those motivations are. So that's what I mean when I say um, our fragility.
0: It really uh, sets a charter for self-examination. You're almost saying to the people in the room: when you feel discomfort, don't immediately transfer that to another. Look at yourself and understand what fragility you're in right now. Exactly, it is a call for yourself.
1: This because this journey is so um, internal, right? It yes. has evidences externally. But the work um, that we have to do is so internal.
0: It's so so amazing. Um, you know if you really study these myths that we hold on to and I don't mean myths as an illusion or even a lie. I mean the myths as a way of governing ourselves in civil society, mm-hmm. you know we believe in money in cash and yeah. Public. And that's a myth. We believe in the constitution. It's a myth, but it becomes operative in the habits we develop that create the outcomes that we live with. And what you're doing is teaching us to really live within those, uh, really examine those ideas uh, uh, that cause the actions we do in society. And uh, I, I think that's just wonderful.
1: Wonderful. Thank
0: you. This has been a great, conversation with Ujima Donaldson. And Ujima, uh, uh, I love your story. Help, help me understand if we were going to have another conversation, that a conversation you'd want to listen to, who would you invite to the table? Yeah, that's a good question. I have a lot of people I'd invite to the table. <laughs> How many more chairs do we have, Ron? Exactly. That, well, the fun thing is I have nothing but time. <laughs> oh my
1: goodness well I think that um, I would probably uh, first think about inviting um, uh, in my immediate circle our senior organizational development consultant Jeff uh, dr. Jeff Lina Weaver um, he comes to and approaches all of his work uh, with a global perspective and um, having been a faculty member um, in the Jackson school um, and uh, just an array of experience. um, But he believes in the power of story Mm. and um, its influences. Um, over our lives and our careers and the such. And so I'm always very curious um, about what's on Jeff's mind. Had a conversation with him the other day. Um, And he is uh, really expanding into understanding um, more about this virtual world as we talk about, you know, a return, Uh, to in-person, but how these effects of the virtual world uh, will continue and even grow and um, deepen our existing uh, connections. So I I would be really thrilled to see what he would say next.
0: Fascinating. And it really is interesting, right? With the so-called, quote unquote, digital transformation that's going on in our Businesses, our schools, our entire operating structure as human beings. We're also faced, whether we live to see it or not, with the day that humans themselves will take on more and more of digital transformation. They'll be different than all humans today, right? That's right. So, yeah, we're seeing the beginnings of it. Absolutely. So, I would love to be introduced to him if you don't mind. That would be outstanding. Sure thing. This has been a great conversation with Ajima Donaldson. Uh, Hope to speak with you in the future too, Ajima. This hopefully is not one and done.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation, Ron.